What happened to our snow? Shoot, I thought this was going to be one of those mornings when we could prove who the real men were, you know? Who had the four-wheel drives or were willing to risk it, you know? That's great. And by the way, if it snows, here's the policy. We don't ever stop, amen. We a little snow or ice. You think it's going to stop us? So put your golf cleats on, your track spikes, or what do you have to do? And get over here in the ice. <clears throat> we'll be fine. So uh, we've always said, unless the furnace blows up, we're having church. So uh, we'll see you at amen. Uh, now, the women, they may call it off. We're not calling it off. So we'll see you. The ones of you who can make it when all the ice and snow comes. Hey, I just got one word to say about that uh, Christmas gift to your wife for the women's retreat. Here's the only word I want to give you. If that's the only thing you give your wife, you're a turkey and you're in trouble. Uh, <clears throat> I hope you'll give, us, give that to her, but boy, that better be just, you know, kind of hanging on the tree, you know, almost an afterthought. Uh, if any of you think you're getting by with that as your main present, you got another thought coming. I'm telling you that right away. Uh, I don't know if you all heard it on NPR. I think it was NPR uh, a few weeks ago. They're having some problems in Baltimore. and just amazed me. The problem they're having up there is with thieves. And uh, they can't catch them. And here's what the thieves are stealing. They're stealing aluminum light poles. These poles, just regular street, you know, highway lights. These thieves are coming by and putting out all their orange cones, you know, in a big truck. And they're hacksawing these things down and selling them for aluminum scrap. I don't know, I guess aluminum scrap price went up or something. And it costs $150,000 to replace a light pole. Gentlemen, they lo- they've lost 130 of these poles. I'm thinking I'm going to run for mayor in Baltimore. I mean, I, I, all you have to do is make one simple promise. I'll keep the light poles on the ground, you know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, the thieves can get by with that. And uh, most guys live their lives like they're going to get by with that. <laughs> and what we've seen with Jonah, if you want to t- take your Bibles and turn there, we've seen that Jonah didn't get away with nothing. <laughs> the Lord called him to a mission in life. Just like he's called you to a mission in life. And the Lord pursues and subdues his missionary, his messenger, just like he's going to do with you. You're not going to get by with it. Uh, he's going to track you down. And he certainly did Jonah. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, that wicked city full of terrorists over in Iraq, literally. And uh, Jonah didn't want to go. So, so he heads for the Mediterranean. <laughs> he's going on vacation to Tarshish. Goes in the opposite direction. God doesn't let him get by with it. And I know some of you in a very dramatic way have done that. Tried to get away and the Lord didn't let you. Well, some of you in a more subtle way. But every one of us we saw has a tendency not to want to fulfill our mission in life. And uh, we have our reasons just like Jonah had his reasons. His reasons were, those are a bunch of terrorists. They don't deserve to go to heaven. They ought to go to hell. And he was literally saying, let them go to hell. And he was angry that the Lord wanted to do something else about it. And... Uh, you may have your reasons for running away from the mission that you know the Lord has given you. But uh, we've seen that the Lord is so gracious, uh, he'll come after you. And the reason that he's successful is that he controls the weather. <laughs> that would help, wouldn't it? If you want to run somebody down, if you want to catch these thieves in Baltimore, if you could just put a little shock through the light pole. Every time someone wanted to hacksaw one down, you'd, you'd find them dead on the road. Well, God controls the weather, he controls the pagans, and he controls you, we saw last week. Now, what happens at the end of chapter one, if you recall, is that uh, Jonah, you know, having confessed to his pagan fellow travelers that he was the problem and the reason for this storm, he said, you, you got to throw me overboard. And they said, Lord, forgive us. They threw him overboard and the 
So he was calm. Meanwhile, Jonah's going blub, blub, blub. And the last verse we had was the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. So um, maybe, you know, it's not the... You know, if you're asking for an upgrade, you know, you don't go from being on the ship to in the, bell, uh, the belly of a fish. But that was Jonah's upgrade. And uh, yet, when we come to chapter 2, we come to a very important moment in Jonah's life. It's not the ultimate moment, but it's a very important moment. It's a moment of turnaround. It's a moment of insight. It's a moment of his realizing that even in his pretty stinky situation right now, the Lord was being gracious to him. And we're going to learn, I hope, a ton of things out of this chapter. It's a poem. It's a psalm. It's, it reads almost like a, something you'd read in, the, in the, one of David's psalms. But let's look at it. Chapter 2. This is after Jonah has been swallowed by the great fish. Oh, Jonah 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains I sank down. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah on dry land. Amen. That'd be really something to say. You know, I'm, I'm just plain old fish vomit. <laughs> That's what Jonah was. Fish vomit. <laughs> Great. All right. Let's look at uh, Jonah chapter 2. Is that, is that just my eyeballs or is it? That's no, no. No, okay. Sorry, it's close enough. It's probably your glasses. Don't worry about it. Uh, Jonah, uh, God saves his messenger, Jonah 2. Now, the first thing I want us to notice is when we are in distress, we must pray. You'll notice in verse 1, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. We've got to learn to pray. It's so interesting that before many of us will really start talking to the Lord, we have to be in real deep weeds. You know, it's kind of like prayer is a last resort. Well, finally, God got Jonah to pray to him. Start talking to him. You say, you know, I'm not real good at prayer. I don't know how to do it. Well, let me give you a couple of pieces of advice. One is, uh, you know, if you're in the Episcopal Church, uh, just get the prayer book. Shoot. You've been saying prayers all your life. You think those are just, you know, just for show? Uh, why don't you take the prayer book home, pay for it, uh, but get one take it home. And, uh, and some of you need to go back and pay for the one you already took. Uh, and... You know, you find, at least in the old one, the 29 prayer book, you had prayers to the family in the back. I think the new one has that too. Uh, but learn, just learn to make those prayers your own. Use them in private. Uh, for those of you who don't have a prayer book, uh, Baptist, Presbyterians, all the rest of you low church people, uh, let me just make it real simple. Uh, just talk to him, would you? Just talk to him. You know, you hear other people pray and say, well, I've never used flowery language like that. I don't know how to pray like that. Well, fine. 
If you start talking to them enough, you will start talking in a different way a year from now than you talk now. Because when you start talking to him, you get to know him and you begin to reflect on his greatness. You start saying some things to him just out of your familiarity of who he is. But just start talking to him. That's all he wants is a conversation with you. And sometimes he has to throw you overboard somewhere and get you in the, in the belly of a fish just to get you to talk. So uh, remember that we are to be people who pray. Uh, Isaiah said, seek the Lord anyway it may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and he will have mercy upon him. So the Lord will have mercy upon you if you just learn to, to pray and to ask. Um, so often we don't have, said James 1, because we don't ask. We don't have wisdom because we don't ask. We don't have his answers because we don't ask. Jesus just put it down on the lower shelf. He said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. I mean, can it be any more simple than that? So just ask, seek, and knock on the door. And when you talk to him, you, you might acknowledge how great he is in whatever language you can come up with. You say, Lord, I know you're great. I know you're greater than I am. I know that I have no right on my own to come to you, but, I, but you invited me, so here I am. And uh, I'm coming in the, the mediation of Jesus Christ. I'm coming in his name. And, uh, and, and I, w- I want to thank you for what you've done in my life. I want to confess that I've failed you. And I want to ask you to undertake uh, for me in my life. I want you to help me. Here's the thing I'm dealing with. And here's what I'd like more than anything else is just simply to be faithful to you in that situation. Now, that's pretty, pretty simple sort of language. But go to him and ask and seek and knock and you will find. He doesn't play hide and seek. Uh, Jeremiah said, if you seek the Lord with all your heart, you will find him. Now, if you're playing games, you won't find him. If you're coming, you know you're hypocritical. You don't really mean it. You're just going through a ritual. You won't find him there either. You'll find your prayer book, but you won't find him. You'll find him when you seek him with all your heart, when you give him your heart, and you're ready to listen to the answer to your prayer. You're ready to look into providence and see the answer to your prayer. So Jonah prayed. And when we're in distress, pray. Don't make it the last thing. Make it the first thing. Now, secondly, when we pray, we must confess a number of things. Now, what I'd like to do at this point is to refer to the back of your outlines where you've got the heading that says the structure of Jonah's Thanksgiving psalm. And I want us just to notice the structure for a moment this this morning. I've got this on several overheads, so it won't be as obvious maybe. But you'll notice there are two basic uh, divisions in this psalm. The first is a statement of Jonah's distress. And the second is... Jonah's deliverance under his distress, you'll notice that it has what we call a chiastic structure, chiastic, which just means an X. It has an X structure. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're going A, B, C, and then you come back and go B prime, A prime. So you have an A and an A prime, a B and a B prime and a C. A and A prime are saying the basic same thing. B and B prime are saying the same thing. And C is saying something that's called a chiasm. And the point is to stress, you know, Jonah's drowning. God hears his cry. You hear that in A and A prime. Uh, B, there's a sensate description of the drowning. You know, he's got seaweed around his head and the waters are swirling around and so on. So you, you can almost, in a poetic way, you can almost feel the distress of going down and you're losing your oxygen and all these things are happening to your body and you know you're, you're sunk. 
And so you have this feeling in the poem. And then when, by the time you get to see, then you get what his real main point is. And that is that Jonah turns to God's temple. There's the turning point in 2-4. So uh, what Jonah's trying to show us in his psalm through the chaotic structure is that 2-4 is the point. He is in great distress. You can feel his distress. And then the answer is going to come when he turns to the temple. Notice the language in 2-4. He turns, he says, uh, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, if we had time, we'd go back to Second Chronicles 6 and 7, with 1 Kings 8, and we'd look at when the temple was constructed, God gave a promise to Solomon and, and said, Solomon, when you and your people are in distress and the rain starts, stops coming, the ground is hardened, the flocks are no longer fruitful and so on, you just turn toward this place, this temple. I'm putting my name here. And of course, he put his presence there through the Shekinah glory, hovering over the Ark of the Covenant. So God dwelt in a very powerful way in the temple. And he said, whenever you look toward this place and pray and ask me, and this is where that famous verse comes from, if my people who are called by my name shall you know, turn from their wicked sins, uh, turn from their sins and so on, and uh, then I will hear their prayer and heal their land and so on. So you have that famous prayer that comes from that statement about the temple. When you're in distress, turn toward me and I will give you relief. Same is true for us. Where's his temple? Well, the temple on the earth is the church, the people of God. And of course, the ultimate temple is in heaven itself. So we turn toward the Lord. That's the climax in uh, the first six verses where Jonah is describing his distress and what he does about it. Then you get to Jonah's deliverance in verses 7 through 9. And there you have basically six statements that talk about Jonah remembering, Jonah praying to the temple, uh, because you have that language again in 2.7. Jonah denounces worthless idols. Jonah warns all the idolaters that they're going to miss out on grace. Jonah promises worship. And Jonah promises his own obedience. So that is the basic outline that we're dealing with in um, chapter 2. Now, I want us to back up and just see if we can take the basic lessons of chapter 2 and put them into effect. And now we're dealing with Jonah's description of his distress and this chiastic poetic structure. But let's just go through the verses and take a look at, at what we need to do when we pray. First of all, we want to confess our extremity, our deep need. We're in deep weeds. Don't whitewash your problems. Jonah says, in my distress, I call to the Lord. From the depths of Sheol, from the depths of the grave. The Sheol is the word there in Hebrew, and it just it means the resting place of the dead. You see that in your footnote in the NIV. From the depths of Sheol, I call for help, and you listen to my cry. So, here is Jonah. He's got one foot in the grave. And he says, now I'm going to call out to the Lord. He acknowledges that he has one foot in the grave. Well, let me tell you something. You've got one foot in the grave, too. Ever since you were born, it's been downhill from there. <laughs> and when you get to be in your 60s and 70s, I know by talking to you and watching you, you get into a whole lot of physical problems. Uh, and you can just feel yourself kind of not what you used to be. And yet, some of us in our Supposed optimism, just want to pretend that things are just going fine. You know, the famous optimist 
who jumped off the Empire State Building, got, to that, got down to about the 50th floor, and he said, so far, so good. And, uh, you know, most people are just living a life like that, never really facing what, uh, you know, what good to great calls, facing the brutal facts. And, you know, in your business, you're not going to do any good at all if you don't face the facts. I know in church life, we're doing no good at all if we don't face the brutal facts. We're not going to make any improvements as individuals. We're not going to make any improvements as a church if we don't face the bad news. And you and I have got to face the bad news. Jonah faced it. Finally, God got his attention. He's in trouble. He needs the Lord. And right now, you're in trouble. And you need the Lord. You're not getting out of this alive unless God does something miraculous for you. You're not going to make it on your own. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how wealthy you are. I don't care how many friends you are. And I don't care how good your mother was. You're not getting out of this uh, on your own. So the first thing, when you pray, if you're going to talk to the Lord, let's have an honest talk about real things. And real things will lead to your distress and the brutal facts of your circumstances. That's the first thing Jonah did out of his mouth. In my distress. I talk to the Lord. Secondly, his, we acknowledge or confess God's right to dispose of us as He will. In verse 2-3, He says, You hurled me into the deep. Now, hang on just a minute, Jonah. Who hurled you into the deep? Those pagans hurled you into the deep, and you're the one who told them to. No. True. But that's not the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is God did it. He says, you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers. Your waves and breakers? That's the ocean, Jonah. Yeah, that's God's ocean. God threw me into his ocean. So if you're going to talk to the Lord, let's get this straight. He's sovereign over your life. He controls all your circumstances, including your disasters. And he has a perfect right to do so. And when you try to explain why he doesn't have a right to do so, would you please just listen to yourself? It's called hypocrisy. (laughs) Pretending to have your feet firmly planted in justice. That God's supposed to deal with you a certain way. You plant your feet into justice, you're damned. Let me tell you what you deserve. The bad news is that you've sinned against him and you do not deserve his favor. You do not deserve his deliverance. You do not deserve to have a comfortable life. You deserve punishment. That's the brutal fact. And so when you get to this uh, third verse, you see Jonah saying very, very clearly, you did it, Lord. And you don't find Jonah defending himself and say, you shouldn't have done that, Lord. You know, shame on you. And what do you think of it? How, what right do you have to, have to deal with humans like this? Don't you know our dignity? No, he is giving God God's rights to deal with us as he will. It's very interesting when you look in Romans chapter 9. Let's just take the worst case scenario relative to God's stance with us. And Paul takes the worst case scenario. Paul doesn't say this is the way it is, but he says, what if, what if, just hypothetically, Paul says, what if God created some for salvation from the very beginning? And from the very beginning, God created some to display his wrath. I mean, isn't this a huge philosophical problem? How could, how could a loving God create people to damn them? Is there, is there a more difficult theological or philosophical problem than that one? If there is, I don't know of it. 
Paul takes up the worst possible philosophical scenario one can imagine. And here's his answer. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Is not God the potter and we're the clay? Does not the potter have the right to do with his clay whatever he wants to? He is creator, gentlemen. And he will do what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is what is right and fair and just. And we know from what the Scriptures say that what is right and fair and just is that we would be condemned. That's right and fair and just. But he's not just fair and just. He's also very, very gracious, as we shall see in the rest of Jonah's prayer. But the first, the starting point is for us to shut our mouths. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 and 3, he goes through every scenario by which someone might deserve heaven. Well, how about the Gentile that never heard of the gospel? He goes through that scenario. He goes through the scenario, what about the Jew, the person who grew up in church and really kept his nose clean and did what his mama told him all of his life and was a goody-two-shoes? What about that person? And then he talks about the person who's just really religious, has memorized his prayer book. What about that person? Goes through all the scenarios and then he says, not a dang one of them is going to make it on his own. And he says, God has done this so that every mouth will be shut. That is, no excuses, nobody having some way they can defend themselves. So the law shuts every mouth from every perspective in the entire world throughout all the ages. We all come now under the judgment of God. Now, we're ready to listen to the gospel. And that's what Paul says in Romans 3.21. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed from heaven. That's right. Our righteousness, our entryway into heaven is a gift that falls down out of the heavens from God, not from anything that we've done on this earth. That's what Jonah's dealing with here, that God hurled him into his ocean and Jonah deserved it because he didn't hadn't accepted the mission that God has given him. Fourthly, he confesses his own sin. If you look in verse four, he says, I have been banished from your sight. He's now talking about God is in the temple and Jonah has been excommunicated. He's been banished. He's been exiled. And that only comes because of unrighteousness and sin. And if you look in Psalm 51, for example, you'll find a similar thing. David goes through his own particular sin with Bathsheba, and then he goes through his, his uh, original sin. He said, in my, uh, he said yeah, in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. So I was, you know, I was in my... When I was conceived, I was conceived as a sinner. So David acknowledges original sin and acknowledges his own sin. He doesn't defend himself from either one. And Jonah acknowledges that he's been rightly banished from the very presence of God because of his sin. And then in D, you, you get the, the language of resolving not to turn from him. And of course, we've seen this is sort of the key to this first section. I will look again towards your holy temple. Now, Gentlemen, um, this is extraordinarily important in the whole concept of repentance, of turning around. And you'll you notice he says, I will look again towards your holy temple. So what Jonah's doing, he's on his way to Tarshish. He's got his back to the temple. And now he says, I'm going to turn back around. I'm going to look back to the temple. I'm going to do what I was told to do in the first place. My mama taught me this, is that when you have a problem, you just turn toward the temple and just pray to Jehovah. And he will hear your prayer. Jonah's taking the things he learned in kindergarten. He's going to put them into practice. Because the most important things in life are the simplest things in life. The most important things about your religion are the simplest things in your religion. 
And that is you just turn from your own, own selfish, self-destructive ways and turn back to where the Lord says He'll hear you with all the promises that come to us through Christ and you turn right to Him and talk to Him. Now, hold your finger in Jonah and turn to the back of your Bibles where we have a, a confession of faith back there in Shorter Catechism. Turn to page um, 2217. 2217 toward the very back. And uh, I just want to show you a definition of repentance that might be helpful. Maybe we looked at this once before, but I think it's important right now in Jonah, too. Uh, This is the Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism. And there's a question, number 87, on page 2217, question 87. It says, what is repentance unto life? Look at this definition. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. So it's a grace. It's something given to you. Just like faith is given to you. You exercise it, but it's a gift. You exercise repentance, but it's a gift. It's a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. So stop right there. Before you can do anything in repentance, you have to know two things. Number one, you've got to know that God is merciful and he loves sinners. You can't do this if you don't believe that. Because you will not deal with the brutal facts if you don't know there's an answer for your brutal facts. It's only the self-confident business person who will look at brutal facts because the self-confident business person knows there's an answer for brutal facts. So he'll go ahead and look at them. If he's not confident, he doesn't want to look at them because he knows he doesn't have an answer for it. doesn't have the confidence that he has an answer for it. Same thing in your spiritual life. You will not look at the depth of your sin if you have no confidence there's an answer for it. So the first thing you need, the catechism put it in a different order. I'm going to put it in this order. First thing you need is an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Then secondly, you have to have a true sense of your sin. So first of all, you get in touch with the answer so that now you have the confidence to deal with the depth, the pathological depth, the spiritual depth of your sin. And he does or doth with grief and hatred of his sin. So it's not superficial. You're not sorry just because you're caught. You have a grief because you've grieved the Lord. You have a hatred of the sin because it is, uh, it is uh, against everything that God stands for. So you have a grief about the relationship and a hatred about the sin itself. You turn, it, uh, you turn from it unto God. So with grief and hatred, you turn away from the sin. You turn toward God. Then look at this phrase, this last phrase. With full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now mark that last phrase. For there to be a sincere turning, a sincere sincere repentance that connects your heart to Christ, there must not only be a turning away from that particular sin, but there must be an endeavoring after and a resolve to Turn away from all sin. Now, you'll never be perfect. You're going to sin the next five minutes. Promised. Guaranteed. But when you do, you'll turn again from that one. Because you have endeavored and resolved to turn from sin in general as well as that sin in particular. So, repentance is a deep, a profound, and uh, it has a a longevity that goes for the rest of this life. uh, And even into heaven. So, notice that Jonah is resolving uh, not to turn from God again. 
uh, in 4b. I will look again toward your holy temple. Then in verses 5 and 6a, you'll notice his helplessness. And uh, this is extremely important because often we think what's really important for me in repentance is to acknowledge how bad my sin was and to acknowledge how bad I am as a person by nature. Well, that's true. You need to acknowledge that. But you need to acknowledge another thing. And that is not only that you are sinful, but that you are helpless. This is a very uh, difficult thing for men uh, because we like to be in control. And God has made us to be in control of a lot of things. And uh, sometimes we don't use the control in the way that we should. So it's very difficult for men to humble themselves and to acknowledge that they cannot solve this. You cannot fix this by yourself. You cannot turn over a new leaf. You cannot clean up your life. You cannot try to do a lot of charitable things to make up for the thievery that you did for these years before. There's no way you can make it up. And here's Jonah. Blub, blub, blub to the bottom of the ocean. If you look at the language here, uh, look, look at how he describes it. His, the waves and breakers uh, have swept over him. The engulfing waters, verse 5, threatened him. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Now, there's a real dignified appearance. <laughs> Go to work someday with seaweed around your head. And see how dignified you feel. That's how Jonah felt going down, completely immersed. Then look at verse 6. To the roots of the mountains. Folks, this is at the bottom of the sea where the mountains from the shore are coming all the way down to the bottom of the sea. He's down there to the roots of the mountains uh, where no man goes. And to the roots of the mountains I sank down and the earth beneath me or beneath barred me in forever. This word barred is a word that's used for imprisoning. It's also, there's a similar Hebrew word that speaks of sandbars. And so he's using a little bit of a turn of phrase here. He's going down to the sandbars where he's going to be imprisoned in hell, into the, into the, uh, into the place of Sheol. So, I mean, he is absolutely helpless. And if you don't think you're helpless, one day you will know for sure you're helpless. and It'll be the day of your death. When you're there and nobody can help you, you can't help yourself. And you'll finally, you'll finally give up. On thinking that you can control your life. Why would you wait until then? It's not that far off. Even for the youngest of you, it's not that far off. Why are you going to wait until then to acknowledge that you don't have control over this thing? Why don't you acknowledge it now? That's called an honest stance for prayer. Is that you cannot help yourself in the things that matter the most. So that's exactly what Jonah is doing. He is confessing his helplessness. He is giving up on his so-called human dignity. And one day we will, whether we like it or not. 6b, he is confessing the undeserved mercy of God in helping us. Look at 6b, he says, But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. You did it, O Lord. You brought my life up. Now this is really amazing. Uh, the place that uh, we ought to have been, the place that ought to have been a place of death becomes a place of deliverance. That's what Jonah is saying. The place that ought to have been his death. Here it is. It's all, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I've had it a couple of times in my life. Once I can remember uh, in high school, we had just lost 
one of our basketball players in high school to an automobile accident. He had died. The next week, some of us went out sledding in the snow on Signal Mountain in Chattanooga. And we went up and uh, everyone was still kind of grieving over the loss of our good friend. And we were at the top of this big hill coming down on a sled. And there were two of us on each sled, two sleds. And we, we were barreling down. I don't know how fast, but it felt like 100 miles an hour down this steep hill on the snow and ice. When all of a sudden a car comes across to cross the intersection and you're sitting on your sled and you can see disaster is about ready to take place. So, of course, I hit the, the steering mechanism on the sled to just take it off the road and just crash over in the gully, and it wouldn't turn. We're going too fast. And we just kept barreling right straight ahead for this inevitable crash. Well, here comes the car. I could see that finally the driver saw us. He hit his brakes and started sliding. There's no, you, know, you know what's happening. Your whole life is passing before your face. So finally, finally, the, the runners actually moved us over just a little bit to the left side of the intersection. And he started sliding and stopped. And we stopped at the same point. Actually, his front tire helped me stop. <clears throat> and his tire was on my back. And it stopped. The car stopped. And that made our sled finally stop. Because we were dragging our feet and doing everything God's creation to stop. Well, when something like that's happening, you're going, okay, Lord, let's see. Let me tally up. <laughs> Scene's not looking very good right here. <laughs> I, mean, I think a call of desperation would be in due here. It would be proper. You, you've had moments like that. Some of you have actually been in foxholes, literally. And you felt this is it. Uh, well, that's what, what Jonah was facing. And yet he's able to say, the Lord spared him, brought him up from the pit. And, you know, I've been brought up from the pit a couple of times. You've been brought up from the pit probably more than a couple of times. Some of you look like you've been brought out of the pit just this morning. Uh, but <laughs> but the, Jonah says, Lord, I was in the depths of Sheol. I was in the grave. And you saved me. You did it, Lord. Now, leave your finger in Jonah and turn over to Matthew chapter 12. That would be page 1565 in your Bibles, 1565. And here in Matthew 12, Jesus has just cast a demon out of a man, a demon that had made this man uh, blind and mute. So the man couldn't see and he couldn't talk and he was demon possessed. Jesus cast the demon out and the scriptures simply say very simply, uh, that he gave him uh, so that he could both talk and see. So now the man has no demons. He can talk and he can see. And here is the stupid question that the Pharisees ask of him in verse 38. Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. <laughs> Hello, where have you been? I mean, he just performed this incredible miracle. And they say, would you please show us a sign? <laughs> And that's the very heart of a person who's looking for a sign. There are never any signs that are good enough. There are never enough of them, and they're never good enough. If you don't want to believe, you're not going to believe. I don't care what I do. I don't care what Jesus does. You're not going to believe if you don't want to believe. If you want to believe, and you're sensitive to see what God did, and sensitive to the evidence that He gave you, you'll see it. You'll understand it. But if you don't want to believe, you won't. And that's what Jesus teaches over and over again. But look at Jesus' answer to these Pharisees in verse 39. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, 
but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus uses this very event in God's history to say, that's what my death and resurrection is going to be like. Jonah is a foretelling of God helping his own son. Because his son did go into the depths of Sheol. His body was laid to rest in a tomb. And where was his son saved from death? In the tomb itself. He came barreling out of there with a new body, with resurrection body, resurrection life, to ascend to his father at his right hand. The tomb became the place of his resurrection. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, you'll see this over and again in the believer's life. That the very place that seems to be the place of death for you becomes the place of life for you. The very place you would not want to go and would not design for a vacation, where God puts you, is the place where He's going to rescue and save you. Let me give you an example. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, you know, is taken to Rome on that nice cruise he had <laughs> with the shipwreck. <laughs> not much of a cruise. Uh, he, I'm sure he didn't use frequent flyer miles for that trip. And he gets to Rome and he's under house arrest. House arrest means that there's a soldier chained to you on four-hour shifts. You never have your privacy. And the only supplies you have are what your friends bring you because in prison in those days they didn't provide anything for you, including food or water. So here's Paul in what you'd call pretty miserable circumstances. He writes to the Philippians and he's writing to them about their spiritual life and about what they need and he's writing from prison. And he's talking about how he got in prison. And he's talking about how even the Christians out of jealousy are preaching so that, to get him in more trouble because they're jealous of him. I mean, it's a horrible existence. And he says, you know, God intends this for my deliverance. He uses the same word. So in Philippians 1.19, you get Paul taking his imprisonment and speaking of it as God's place of deliverance. And gentlemen, when we understand God's big picture in our lives, we'll often be able to see as Jonah did, that while he's in that stinking fish's belly, and you might think, you know, it's bad enough to die, but have to die through fish acid you know, indigestion. It's really about the worst. And then come out as fish poop. is about the worst way I can think to die. But Jonah is aware that God's up to something while he's in that fish's belly. That's the whole point of this, is that God gives us his undeserved mercy. Then uh, let's, let's turn to verse uh, 7. And we realize this as we turn to his away from his distress to his deliverance. And we see that when we pray, we must thank God. How? By acknowledging his unique power in hearing prayer. Look at verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. So God alone hears prayer and answers it. You say, now, hang on just a minute. I mean, it's good for you to say, Wilson, that your God hears prayer, but... There are a lot of other religions in this life, you know. And in every religion I know, Wilson, they pray. 
And as a matter of fact, they pray prayers of thanksgiving. So let's not get on our high horse about your particular religion and say your, your religion is the only one who has a God who hears prayer. Well, the only reason that I'll stand by what I said is because the Scriptures says it. Now look, for example, at Psalm 135. Keep your finger there in Jonah. Turn to page 952 in your Bible. 952. And here the psalmist is talking about the God who does whatever he wants to. He says, uh, verse 6, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. So that the Lord not only rules heaven, he rules the earth, and he rules the underworld too. Does whatever he wants. But then if you look, when he compares, he, he's showing a contrast in verse 15. He says, the idols of the nations, that is the gods of the nations, okay? The God of all the other religions, all the other nations of the world. Let's talk about them for a minute. We talked about our God. He rules over the earth. But the idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They're creations of men. They didn't create, uh, their gods did not create man. Man created their gods. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them and so will all who trust in them. So they can't hear. And you'll find the testimony throughout the Scriptures that their gods can't hear. I mean, what about the situation with Elijah on Mount Carmel? Is this not a classic encounter of Jehovah versus the most popular God of, their, of his day, of Elijah's day? Here you have this massive encounter, and Elijah said, okay, let's figure out who God is. We'll have this little altar here. You all put your sacrifice over there, and I'll build this altar over here, and I'll put my sacrifice over here, and let's, the God who answers our prayer will be the God who is the real God. And particularly, let's put a little, let's ratchet this thing up a little bit more. We'll know that He has answered when the fire for your sacrifice comes out of the skies. And you didn't do it with kerosene in a, in a match <laughs> or you know, rubbing sticks together, whatever they did in those days. Let's just, let's just set it this way. Whatever, whichever God answers by fire, that's the real God. Okay, so you have these guys, you know, all these prophets of Ashtoreth and prophets of priests of Baal. They're dancing around doing their rituals and, you know, and they're calling out to God and, and they're slashing themselves so the blood comes everywhere. They're sacrificing their own blood and they're trying to impress Baal to come on and show himself to be the God, God of the earth. And uh, Elijah taunts them. He says, hey, maybe your God's taking a leak. <laughs> I mean, literally, he says, maybe he's gone aside to go to the bathroom, you know. So give him a break, you know. Maybe he's taking a little rest. <laughs> and, you know, I'd be saying, Elijah, shh, cut it out, man. We hadn't, a fire hadn't come on our sacrifice yet. And then, and then Elijah tells them all to shut up, stand aside. And he says, God, show them that you are, Jehovah, show them that you are God. And God answers with fire. And the people say, the Lord, that is Jehovah, he is God. Jehovah, he is God. And then, of course, they slaughtered the priests and prophets of the false gods. That's a classic power encounter between God and everyone else who claims to be God. The God who is, says Jesus Christ, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is none other. Now, you don't have to believe that. But that's what Jesus taught. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to Jehovah. No one comes to the Father but by Him. So we are dealing with a unique power that Jehovah alone has to answer 
the prayers of people in distress who call upon him. Secondly, he thanks him by acknowledging his unique power to give grace. The word here, isn't it interesting? It says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The word grace is hesed in the Hebrew. It just means steadfast love, the covenant love that God makes with his people. When you go after these other gods and other religions, you're forfeiting the only opportunity you have to have the true God who really is in heaven to be gracious toward you. God can't be gracious apart from the Trinity. If God is gracious, he must be Trinitarian. Think about it. God cannot be gracious if there's only one person in the Godhead. Christians alone describe God as triunity. Why must he be triune in order to be gracious? Here's why. His grace saves you from your distress. What's your distress? You've come under the judgment of God because of your sin. How shall you be relieved of your distress? Well, if God is just, he must punish sin. So how's he going to, how's he going to relieve you? He sends a substitute to pay the punishment for your sin. Well, why does it have to be God? Because if he's not God, he may pay for Don Jordan's sins, but he can't pay for your sins and mine because it's only one human being who's being put upon the cross. He must be of infinite value so he can die for your sins and your sins, Robert, and mine and all of us. And that's exactly what happened. The triune God sent the second person of the Trinity in the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas so that when he dies on the cross, he dies not just for his mother Mary or dies just for his brothers or for somebody else, one individual. He dies for all people of all time who put their trust in Jehovah. He pays the ultimate price for every sinner everywhere who will come to God in repentance. That is the reason that for us to have the grace of ultimate deliverance, God must have a second person so that He doesn't abandon heaven when He sends His Son to die on the cross. Now, why do we need a third person in order for God to be gracious? Because God may provide that for you, but if you don't know about it, and furthermore, if He doesn't raise your soul from the dead to believe it, you're not going to even believe it. And you must believe in order to be saved. How are you going to believe? Because you're as dead as a doornail. Spiritually, the Bible says we have Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Have you ever tried to convince a dead person to receive Jesus? Well, actually, I have. (laughs) It was some of you. (laughs) That's exactly what it means to talk to a person about Christ. You're talking to a dead person. So what you're trusting in is not just that Jesus Christ provided the atonement for that person. You're trusting that Jesus, that that God is triune. There's a third person of the Trinity who will come from heaven and come into that person's life and regenerate. Give them new life. Give them new birth miraculously in their hearts. If God is not triune, there's no hope for that dead sinner. There's as much hope for him as there is for you to go to the funeral home today and try to talk someone into living. Or go out to the graveyard, see how much, how much progress you'll make. And that's how much progress you would make in telling your children or your grandchildren about Jesus if there's no third person of the Trinity. So God must be triune if He's gracious. And that's the reason that Jonah is saying these people who are creating gods that they think they can get along with, those gods don't even exist. 
And if they're not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there is no grace because there's no way for you to be saved. So the God of the Bible is uniquely a gracious God. In Islam, there are 99 names for Allah. One of them is not love. Verses 2, 9a and 9b. Jonah says, I will give him offerings. I will, I will respond to this grace because I have found God. I have found grace. I have found help. And now I am going to respond. Just watch me. Michael, Michael, David's wife, was very embarrassed that he lost his dignity when he was dancing before the Lord. She says, oh, look at David today. Look at the king today. Isn't he making quite a show of himself? And David said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because I know God. That's the reason God says David's a man after my own heart. He knows something about grace. He will dance. And some of us won't even sing. You know, in Episcopalian and Presbyterian circles, church dancing is called a procession. <laughs> and some people, honestly, there's some people in some choirs that won't. I don't, I don't do processions. Oh, I see. Okay. Jonah is saying, I will give him an offering. I will sing. He says, with a song of thanksgiving. How about you? You say, I'm a lousy singer. It doesn't, it doesn't say anything in the Bible about all those who have a good voice who can sing on key. Make a joyful song unto the Lord. No. It says, make a joyful noise. I love that word noise. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Who? All ye lands. Do you live on the land? Then make a joyful noise to the Creator of the land. Especially, do you know Jehovah? Do you know His, do you know His grace, the grace of the Trinity? Make a joyful noise Unto the Lord. Get it out. Don't do it so the person in the pew in front of you turns around (laughs) holding their ears. But be sure that the Lord hears your song. Learn to sing. If you come to Christ, you've got to learn to take whatever voice and ears you've got and make the best of it. And believe me, the rest of us may laugh at your voice, but he doesn't. He loves it. He calls it love. He says, I'll make a sacrifice to the Lord. How do we sacrifice? Well, we've looked at this before. In the New Testament, there are three instances of the word sacrifice. In Hebrews 13, the sacrifice of your lips, making a joyful noise. In Philippians chapter 4, the sacrifice of your finances, a fragrant offering, Paul calls it, a sacrifice. And in Romans chapter 12, we have submission. I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Your body, your whole life, in submission to Him. So it must be in obedience to the Lord. This is the proper response. When you're in the fish's belly, in that stinky place that most people would call death, you realize it's for your deliverance. God has you in a place to save you. And so a song of thanksgiving breaks out. But most people would say, I'm telling you what now, if I got swallowed by a fish, I ain't singing no song of thanksgiving to the Lord. Unless you have the heart of a Jonah who understands that God works in places that look like death to give life. And that's the reason that Jesus was always singing a song. Look at his life. He's singing a song. They went from the Last Supper out to the Garden of Gethsemane. What were they doing? Singing a song. A psalm of ascent. A psalm of praise. They were singing. And so there's joy in the the fish's belly. 
And then there's a proclamation of salvation. You notice that when Jonah is swept up by this fish, he says this profound statement. He says, salvation is a cooperative effort between me and the Lord. <laughs> uh, or I'm saved because, you know, finally I, I, I had the, the moral depth. I'm just so pleased with myself. I had the moral depth to finally understand this thing, you know. I mean, I was just stupid. I was just a child. I just wasn't thinking. And now it comes clear to me. And, you know, salvation is really a thing of enlightenment. Just, just hanging in there and progressing and doing your best. You'll finally get it. No, no. When you have been thrown overboard and by nothing on your own, you're swept up and you're given oxygen, even though it's putrid, and you're preserved... And you know God has an intention for you to send you back to Nineveh. You get it. Salvation comes from one place. The whole thing. Your faith, your repentance, your life, everything. It comes from the Lord. It's all in Him. It's all of the Lord. The word salvation is from the word Yeshua. Which means Joshua. Or Jesus. That's the reason that the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1.21. You shall call His name Jesus. Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. So Joshua was saved from his trip to Tarshish. We're saved from our sins by the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, when we pray, verse 10, we must expect God to answer imperfect prayers. Let me tell you why I say this. Look at verse 10. The Lord, (laughs) God talks to fish. I mean, this is really incredible, isn't it? The Lord literally talked to the fish. And it threw up Jonah <laughs> onto dry land. Now, the word, <laughs> the word vomit is used in the Old Testament. It's used primarily for how God is going to vomit us out of the land when we're disobedient. He says, I'll thrust you out. It's like a thrust from a vomit. If you have, I'm sorry, this is pretty graphic, but you know, if you've got little one-year-olds and they get sick and you see them throw up, they can hit from here to the wall. Whoa! <laughs> And that's what God says I'm going to do to you. Uh, when you're disobedient to me in the land, I'm going to vomit you out. Now look at the reversal of the language here. Jonah gets vomited back into obedience. <laughs> so God is saying, I'm going to vomit you, Jonah. And God's saying that to, to reverse the sort of analogy, to give a sense that, you know, sometimes when things look like a total disaster, you look like you're, it feels like he's not dealing with you very well. He's, he is, it feels like vomit. He's vomiting you in the right direction. Yeah, okay, it feels like vomit, smells like vomit, fine. But he's vomiting you in the right direction. It's actually gracious and it just doesn't feel like it yet. That's one thing. The other thing I want to suggest to you, though, is that God, and I've got one more minute here, God was vomiting because of a couple of things I want you to consider. One is Jonah's self-centeredness. I want to suggest to you that Jonah still didn't quite get it. If you were to look back in this text, you would find a pronoun I, Verses 2 through 9, you'll find the pronoun I ten times. You'll find the possessive pronoun my seven times. I want to suggest to you that even though Jonah is repenting, he hadn't fully gotten it yet. In Jonah's mind, this is still about Jonah. It's about I and my and me. That's one thing. The other thing I want you to consider is Jonah's continued resistance. This guy, even after he is vomited out on the seashore, as we shall see next week, he makes his way to 
Nineveh. But he is not still cheerfully obedient to the Lord. He's dragging his feet. He's making excuses. He's pouting. He is not a cheerfully obedient person. Now, I don't know how you feel about this. But this really encourages me. (laughs) Because, you know, when I get caught by the Lord and I turn around, I have to say my repentance isn't perfect either. Which is to say this, gentlemen. You are not saved by your faith and your repentance. Because your faith and your repentance are not good enough. You are saved by Jesus Christ. He is good enough. It's not that your faith and repentance are perfect. It is that in the moment, the best you understand it, it's as sincere as you can make it. The seed of faith and repentance are there. So don't go trusting in your perfect repentance. Jonah didn't have it. He did not have it. And I think that's the reason that when the Lord leads us from one place to another, even though we're carefully in His hands of love, it smells a little bit like vomit. Because I think He's still a little sick (laughs) over our imperfect obedience. But with that vomit, if I can put it that way, it's love. God is taking us and carrying us along, surely getting us to the place we need to be, but having to deal with a bunch of knuckleheads. And I'm so glad that we're the people He deals with. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this psalm of thanksgiving and pray that we may have a similar psalm in our own lives as we consider our desperate need of You and Your unique power and willingness to shed Your grace upon our hearts. And Lord, we would ask that You would increasingly make us open to receiving from Your hand the most difficult times in life, knowing that these are the places of our deliverance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.